0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Before we start with the sermon, I want to uh, bring a prayer request to all of us. It's a prayer request from the board. Um, they're going to be meeting on Tuesday. This is their regular board meeting, but part of what they're going to be doing is processing our feasibility study, and we had our, our feasibility study a few weeks ago, and last week we heard a report from Dave Wynn about it, a very positive study, but certainly uh, with some, some questions about about what it is that we're going to be able to raise and, and all of that and how to proceed with that. So the board is going to be meeting on Tuesday, and they're asking that we be praying for them. They want to process this thing completely. They want to look at all of the options so that they can present those options to you on June the 14th, which is uh, our congregational meeting um, and that's going to be an evening of discerning and making some decisions together. So after the board meets on Tuesday, uh, they're going to be um, passing that information, or all the way along, passing information to, to us as a church family so that we can be informed and prepared to, to discern and to, to decide some things on June the 14th. So I hope that you can all be there for that meeting. And we just need to be praying. Uh, I feel like God's fingerprints are all over this. Uh, there's nothing to worry about, even a little bit, because God is sovereign over all things. And we have been saying, and we've been hearing the board saying, and, and leadership saying all the way along, that this building project, it's going to be about building a building, certainly, but it's going to be about growing us in maturity. And I, I believe that God is going to use this building project to grow us in, uh, in prayer. And so we're going to take some time even right now to pray. Please join with me, and let's, let's pray. God, I thank you that there is nowhere that we can go that you are not there. I thank you that you love us so deeply and that you are so faithful to us. I thank you for how you have directed us as a church up until this point and how you are going to continue to walk with us, that you never leave us and you never forsake us. And I thank you, Lord, that, that we've had this, this feedback from this feasibility study. I thank you that people have been able to weigh in as part of this, this discernment process. Uh, that you are in control of. And I pray, Lord, that we would be open to hearing your voice, that we would be open to how you are leading us, that we would have eyes to see that which you are doing around us and what you want uh, to do in us and in our community through us. And God, I pray that you would bless the board on Tuesday. I pray that as they sit down with the results of the feasibility study, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them joy in in discerning what it is uh, that they would present to us as a church family. And on that day when we meet together on the 14th, I pray, Lord, that you would bless that meeting with, with unity and with wisdom as well. And I pray that our conversation would be honoring to you. And we, I pray that you would use this whole thing to grow us closer to you, to grow us to be more dependent on you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this whole thing uh, to build whatever it is that you would have us build, but that it would be for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. I thank you for this church family, for the body of Christ that you have instituted, and I pray, God, that you would have your way in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see if this works. I'm going to need your help in the back. This is a picture of uh, me and my sister. I'm probably in about grade one. Or grade two, I think. Actually, probably grade one, because my sister is, I think that's her first day of school. I used to be cute. Uh, I was about that age, and uh, I had a nightmare. And maybe a lot of you have had this nightmare as well, especially when you were kids. I had a nightmare that I was, I must have been in grade two, because my nightmare was in my grade two classroom, and the kids from the wave are dismissed. Way to go. (laughs) All you Wave kids, I'll tell you about my nightmare later. It's okay. (laughs) So I had this nightmare. And I dreamt that I was sitting in my classroom in grade two. I'm in my my desk, in my row. And all of a sudden, I realize that I'm wearing my pajamas. And uh, we probably all had a dream, something like this. And I remember just being horrified in my dream. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to get out of this room without people seeing that I'm in my pajamas? And uh, I don't have those kind of dreams anymore. I'm not too worried about that kind of stuff. Uh, Those aren't my nightmares. My nightmares have changed. My nightmares are different now. My nightmares now are kind of, what if I had to get up in front of people and preach a sermon about a man who goes to see a witch to talk to a dead prophet? That's my nightmares now. So, So today's kind of like a dream come true for me. Uh, in this age of Internet, uh, there's lots of different things that we can see, different pictures and stuff, and, and oftentimes we see motivational posters, and the trend lately has been uh, demotivational posters, and you've probably seen some of those. If you want to take a look at this, this is a picture of a shipwreck. You can't see it real well. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> That's a sobering, scary thought, but it's actually a really good setup for today's sermon because I believe that Saul's life has been recorded at least largely uh, as a cautionary tale for us. Uh, Saul's life is a warning to others because we read about Saul in Scripture about how not to have a God-focused life. All the way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been hearing about this for, for weeks now, the author has been comparing David and Saul. That comparison's been going all the way through about how David was truly a man after God's own heart and how Saul was not. So we can learn from David about what it is to be focused on God and we learn from Saul what it is to to not be. And the main reason for this difference in their lives has to do with what their governing principles are in their life. Uh, A governing principle is a fundamental rule that guides and influences the choices that we make. And these two guys could not be any more different Uh, David's governing principle was a vertical one. And we're going to be talking about vertical versus horizontal this morning. David's fundamental governing principle was a vertical one, where no matter what his foibles were, and he made lots and lots of mistakes, David did just maybe as many as Saul did, but David always went back to God. David always repented of his sins. David, ultimately, in the end, David was always most interested in in the glory of God and what was good for God. But Saul, his governing principle was more horizontal. It had more to do with himself and the people around him. He focused on saving face in front of people. He focused on earthly success. And he focused on maintaining his position of power. And that's what a horizontal life is. A horizontal life is about honoring yourself. It's about impressing people. And... Saul consistently showed us how to do that. And a vertical life is about honoring God. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, showed us consistently how to do that. And before we get into this, we need to have a little bit of a disclaimer here, because I'm going to be doing a lot of Saul bashing this morning. Because um, there's lots to bash Saul about in his life. But the part that really haunts me the most is, is how much I can identify with Saul. Saul. And uh, this morning, I'd invite us, even though we're going to be kind of villainizing Saul a little bit, because he truly did live a horizontal life compared to David's vertical life, I invite all of us to prayerfully consider what it is that God might be telling us as a cautionary tale about Saul's life, because I think that we can identify with what it is to be afraid of, of looking bad in front of others. I think we can identify with what it is to be afraid of failure, and Saul was more afraid of those things than he was about obeying God. And uh, I think we can identify sometimes with that. So we're going to talk about Saul's mistakes, but let's 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 uh, try to identify ourselves with him this morning. Uh, there's a story about one of my cousins. Uh, he plays the drums. Uh, as you'll see from the story, maybe the DNA in my family is that we're big on music but low on common sense. Because uh, this is a story. Uh, he, this is years ago, almost 20 years ago. He got, a, he got a job playing in a band in Los Angeles, and he's from, from Winnipeg here too. And so he was going to go play in this band. And so he, he tries to get a work visa to play in this band, and he doesn't get one. He's not allowed to go play in, in this band in Los Angeles, so he has a plan. His plan is that his friend is going to drive him to uh, the the border crossing at Boisevain, and they're going to tell the custom officials that they're going to Minot for the weekend to visit some family, and then they're going to come back. Meanwhile, he's going to get out of the car and get onto a plane and fly to Los Angeles. His friends are going to drive back, and nobody would be the wiser. It's a really good plan. So they tried doing that, and they they drove to Boisevain, and uh, they get to Customs, and, you know, they ask some questions and so on, and they end up looking into their car. And, and obviously, uh, my cousin has way too much stuff for just one weekend. So the questions get more deep and more deep, and my cousin has to be more elaborate in how he's lying to answer these questions. Um, nobody told him, I guess, that you don't mess with the, the customs officials. And, and so he's, he's telling all of these lies, and, and it's just getting crazier and crazier the things that he has to say in order to make his story still work. Until finally, they take his friend and put him in one room, and they take my cousin and put him in another room, and they give them both a piece of paper, and they say write out your whole itinerary for the weekend, the people that you're going to be seeing, uh, the addresses that they're at, and everything that you're going to be doing, uh, and, and uh, then we'll compare notes after. And my cousin, he, when he told me the story, he, he talked about just that feeling of dread. Because you're sitting down and you know that that's it, You're, it's end game now, because there's no way that they can possibly, possibly tell the same story because they never took the time to actually make any story with each other. So, uh, musicians, right, that's, that's us, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyways, in the end, they had to say, well, yeah, we were lying the whole time and you got us. And I think they, they impounded their car. Uh, my cousin had to call, call his brother-in-law to drive from Winnipeg to pick them up. Uh, I'm not sure if he still can go to the States. It's, it's, you know, There's consequences for, for, for those kinds of things. Uh, and for my cousin, the governing principle was uh, that he was going to do whatever it took to get to Los Angeles. That was, that was the governing principle. So, and that was more important than doing the right thing. That was more important than uh, doing the wise thing uh, or the smart thing. Uh, and because of that governing principle, the choices he made just had to get more and more ridiculous, and eventually he just ran out of options, and, uh, and he was done. And that's the story today of Saul's life. Uh, self-preservation was his governing principle. And, and that took precedence... Over everything. Um, and I think that's not unfair to say. If, if we look over 1 Samuel, uh, self preservation was what motivated Saul. And that took precedence over obedience to God, that took precedence over wisdom, and ultimately the consequences caught up with him. And uh, today we're going to be reading about the day that they did. Uh, we're going to be reading about the last day of Saul's life. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel 28. And we're going to be reading just a part of the passage, uh, starting with verse 3. I invite you to to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Starting with verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled And came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night... He and two men went to, the, went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. And we'll stop right there. You guys can have a seat. What a strange passage this is. So at the beginning of this passage, Saul is afraid. He is terrified, the scripture says. The Philistines have gathered for battle, and they're gathered at Shunem. They're at the end of a valley. This is an important battle the next day. If they capture this valley, then they're going to be cutting a path right through Israel. They're going to be disrupting the major trade route in Israel, and they're going to be uh, separating some of the tribes of Israel from each other. So this is a really important battle, but that's not even the hardest part of this for Saul. Because this story is taking place at the same time as the story that Terry preached about last Sunday. Uh, You might remember that uh, David was running from Saul, and so he ran away to the Philistines for a time. He was there for 16 months. And there was this moment of time where it seemed like he might actually have to fight against his own people in order to stay fighting with the the Philistines. And we don't actually know if David would have pulled out. Uh, God made up his mind for him, as the circumstances were last week. But this is that same moment. So Saul... There's two things that Saul is most afraid of uh, in in his whole reign, Uh, and one of those is the Philistines, and the other is that he's threatened by David. And as far as Saul knows, he's facing both of them tomorrow. Uh, We know the rest of the story. We know that David did not end up fighting with the Philistines, but uh, Saul didn't know that yet. So he's scared. He's scared, and God's not talking to him. We see in verse 6 that he asks the Lord for help, but he gets nothing back in response. And the truth is, it had already been years since God had said anything to Saul or given him any help. Uh, God had taken his hand off of Saul a long, long time before this, all because of Saul's consistent unwillingness to put God's interests ahead of his own. You see, and this is, this is our first point, a horizontal life seeks its own interests, while a vertical life seeks to honor God. There's an old joke Not even that funny, but I'll tell you anyways. There's an old joke about uh, a farmer and his wife driving in a pickup truck. Uh, And and, uh, they've been married a long, long time, and he's driving. And she says to him, remember when we were first married, we used to sit a lot closer to each other in the cab. Why don't we do that anymore? And the farmer says, well, I haven't moved. (laughs) In James 4, verse 8, God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. It was Saul who drew away from God before God drew away from Saul. Uh, Throughout his life, every time that obeying God conflicted with Saul's governing principle of self-preservation, Saul disobeyed God. And he kept doing that over and over and over until finally the Lord just let him go. And there's lots of examples of this, but there's been two main ones, and we've focused on them already, so we won't spend much time on them. But the first one is back in chapter 13, when Saul is about to go into battle with the Israelites, and he's waiting for Samuel to show up so that Samuel can light the offering to, to offer to the Lord in, in, uh, in seeking God's favor before the battle. And Samuel is late, not even very late, he's just a little bit late. And uh, Saul is feeling the pressure from from his men. Uh, They're afraid and they're running. And some of them are are leaving and going to hide. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he lights the offering himself. Uh, And then Samuel arrives and Samuel says, if you had let me light the offering today, if you had obeyed God today, rather than taking matters into your own hands, that would have clinched the kingdom for you this would have been your kingdom. We get a little bit of a glimpse into the, the what if. I don't know how that works under God's sovereignty. I don't understand it. It's a mystery to me. But there's a what if, where Samuel says, if you had obeyed, this would have been your kingdom. But now your kingdom is doomed to fail, and it's going to be given to somebody else. And then later, in chapter 15, Saul blows it again. God tells Saul to attack the Amalekites. And he tells some very specific things instructions. He says, when you attack the Amalekites, you have to destroy everything this time. You have to destroy all of the livestock even. Uh, you can't leave anybody alive. These were God's specific instructions. And Saul goes ahead and he defeats the Amalekites. But when his soldiers suggest the idea of sparing the best animals, Saul agrees and he decides to do that. And then he also decides to spare the life of the king of, of the Amalekites. He gave in to horizontal pressure and chose to obey God. And on paper, this sounds ridiculous. Why would he do that? Why would he do something different than what God said just because he had pressure? This is what God had said. But we, don't, we can't be too hard on Saul because I think if we're honest, we all know what it is to choose to do things or to say things that we know that God's word wouldn't approve of. And on that day, Samuel said to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. God had turned away from Saul because Saul had turned away from God. Do you ever wonder, again, with the what-ifs, if Saul had, had turned back to God with a humble heart, even on this last night of his life, if Saul had turned back to God with a humble heart and inquired of God with genuineness, with brokenness. If Saul had done that, would God have would God have responded to him, do you think? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I, I think that he would have. And not just because I'm saying because God is a loving God, he should have, so on. I think that's a dangerous way to start any sentence. Uh, God is God, and he's not dependent on what we think God should do. But Scripture does say some things. Psalm 51 Verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you God will not despise. Or in Zechariah 1, verse 3, God says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. I think that if Saul had truly humbled himself before God with a broken and contrite heart, God would not have despised him. I think that the God of the Bible would have shown him mercy at least comforted him, maybe not taking away the consequences of his sin. God still leaves us that, oftentimes. But I I think that things would have gone better for Saul. I think he would have received something. But I don't think, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, it says in verse verse 6, it says, Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer. I don't think that Saul's appeal to God was humble or genuine. And I, I say that for two reasons, partly because we have a track record of Saul where, where there's a few times where he says things that aren't genuine, where he says to David, you didn't kill me today, I was in the wrong, I promise I will never hurt you. He did that twice, and it was just words. It was just words. Or, or also, um, when, when he's confronted with his sin, uh, he, just, he made excuses. He, he said that he was, he was sorry, but he had other words right after that. I don't think that Saul was, was humble or genuine. And the, mostly the reason that I think that is because right after Saul didn't receive an answer from God, he went to see a witch. Like, I wonder how many minutes he waited on God before he decided to go see a witch instead. Uh, to me, God was, or Saul was using his mouth uh, to say things in, in inquiring of the Lord, but I think in his heart, I think Saul had plan B ready to go Uh, because he he wasn't going to wait on God. And God isn't stupid. God is is wisdom. God is the smartest. He sees everything, and he knows exactly how genuine we are. He sees the heart no matter what we look like on the outside. And so God would not have been fooled by Saul uh, if Saul was inquiring with a heart that wasn't broken and contrite. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a boy named Owen who, uh, he was the class bully. He'd failed a few times, so he was three years older than all the rest of us, and he was a big, big kid. And he had kind of a kingdom. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this growing up in your playground, but he had a kingdom. Whatever Owen said, everybody did. And if you didn't, then life was going to be hard. And my life was really hard for probably about three years. Um, that kid beat me up so many times. Uh, It was, it was tough. But I remember him saying, I remember him saying in the playground for whoever was going to hear, and I don't know where he got this from because he wasn't a church kid. I don't know what he knew about the gospel. I don't really know at all. But he said, oh, and just backstory, this was the 80s. So for those of you who remember being in the 80s, we talked a lot about nuclear war in the 80s. I remember in grade five and six, being worried about nuclear war. There was all the Cold War stuff between, between the states and Russia. And so that was kind of always on everybody's minds. And I remember in the playground that Owen said to everybody, he said, I'm going to turn to God right before the bomb hits. Right before the bomb hits, I'm going to become a Christian. But not till then. That's, that's, that's not a conversion, That's not a conversion. Praying a a sinner's prayer without repentance or humility before the Lord is just saying a bunch of words. It's It's like a magic formula. And turning to the Lord has a lot less to do with what we say, with the actual words that we say, and a lot more to do with what's going on in our heart. And God knows the difference between those things. So Saul, inquiring of the Lord in this chapter, Probably looks exactly on the outside like David inquiring of the Lord in last week's sermon, when he came back to Ziglag and somebody had raided his his camp and they had taken all of the the women and the children away, and David inquires of the Lord. Uh, Saul might have looked exactly like that. But it doesn't matter what we look like on the outside, because God looks at the heart. That's been our theme in this series the whole time. God looks at the heart. It's the same as, uh, as when we worship God together on a Sunday morning. This is one of my, this is my happy place, you guys. To, to worship God with my church family is, is my favorite thing. But on any Sunday, any two of us might be standing side by side on a Sunday morning, and we might be looking exactly the same. Uh, we might be singing songs of, of praise, uh, and one of us might be genuinely worshiping God in our heart, and the other one of us might be thinking of something completely different and not giving our hearts to God at all. And it looks the same on the outside, but God sees what's on the inside. So a couple of questions to consider so far. I think that's the next slide. Uh, What do you think is the governing principle in your life? What guides your decisions and the way that you interact with other people? And in what ways is your visible spiritual life the same as what God sees in your heart? And in what ways is it not? If we're going to learn anything from Saul, these are questions that we need to be asking ourselves. On to our second point. Our second point is a horizontal life is unrepentant when sin is confronted, while a vertical life seeks forgiveness. So Saul hasn't heard an answer from God for at least five minutes. So he asks his servant to find him a woman who is a medium so he can go and inquire of her instead. This is no small thing. Uh, the law of Moses speaks against witchcraft numerous times uh, with very strong language. For instance, uh, in Leviticus, it says, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And Saul knew this. In fact, earlier in his reign, and we saw it in, in uh, verse 3, earlier in his reign, he himself had done the right thing, and he'd banished all of the, the mediums and the spiritists from the land. But now he's desperate. He's desperate. And his governing principle calls for him to decide that that the situation is bad enough that it warrants um, disobeying God in a serious way. So under the cover of night, he travels to see a witch in the town of Endor. By the way, I discovered in my research that this is not uh, the same Endor that is the forest moon in Star Wars. (laughs) There are no Ewoks in this story. I was only a little bit disappointed. So he goes to this witch, and he asks he asks her to bring up Samuel from the dead, and then he proceeds to have a conversation with him. And it's here that we just have to stop, you know, and say, what in the world is going on? What in the world is going on in this story? It's easy to to read this story like it's a newspaper, uh, but this really happened. Uh, Saul went to see uh, a medium, and she calls up Samuel, and he talks to Samuel. How is that even possible? Uh, We have to ask that question, and we have to ask a few questions. And these questions are being asked by lots of people. Uh, When when I look at commentaries, there's lots of questions, and they're all answered in different ways. But was it actually Samuel? Do you believe it was actually Samuel that Saul spoke to that night? Uh, Did this medium actually have the power to call up a dead saint from the great beyond? Or was this merely a demonic apparition of Samuel? And the answer to that really depends on on who you ask. But I think it was, Samuel. I think it was, and I think that for a few reasons. I think that Samuel spoke truth to Saul about what the Lord had to say to him, and Samuel spoke truth to Saul about what was going to be happening the next day. Samuel used some of the same language that he has in previous conversations with Saul when he refers to David as, as his neighbor. Your kingdom is going to be given to one of your neighbors, David. That was something that we've seen Samuel say before. Um... It could, go, it could go either way. I, I think that, that Satan is an angel of light. Uh, of light. Uh, the Bible tells us that. And certainly Satan can, can deceive us in, in, in elaborate and deep ways. But I think that this, this really truly may have been Saul. But I don't believe that the medium actually had the power to summon Samuel. It was only by the power and the will of God that Samuel was able to appear that night. And the reason that I think this is the witch's reaction and if you look in verse 12, it says, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. I don't know if on any other day, uh, when this, this woman was doing this job, I don't know if she was a fake, if she was just uh, pretending, like in the movie Ghost. Remember Oda Mae in Ghost? I, I don't know if she was like that. Or if actually she was using powers of evil and she was summoning up spirits, uh, evil spirits. I don't know what her life was like. But either way, whatever was happening here was new. Uh, when she saw Samuel, she was, she was afraid. She'd never seen whatever was happening here. This was different than she'd ever seen before. I believe that this was, this was God doing something that she was not expecting. I believe God allowed Samuel to talk to Saul that night, and Samuel did not have any good news for him. In verse 16, he says to Saul, why do you consult me? Now that the the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce anger against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me heavy 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 news and obviously this was not what Saul wanted to hear and when he read or and we read that when he heard this news he falls to the ground filled with fear but that's all we read there's no response to god after hearing this message we don't read about any repentance we don't read about any humility we don't read about anything uh, of him responding to, to these words in a, in a way that is him responding to the Lord. We read about nothing at all. And this makes me think back to the priest Eli. Remember back at the beginning of this series uh, when Eli is faced with, in some ways, very similar news. He hears a prophecy also through Samuel, except for this time Samuel is alive and he's a little boy. Uh, he hears that, that the Israelites are going to be defeated. He hears that he is going to die he hears that his sons are going to die very very similar but his response was one of humility his response was he is the lord let him do what is good in his eyes but saul saul says nothing the real comparison in this book of course is between saul and david every time that david was confronted with sin at least in what we have in what we've in what we can read Whenever he was confronted with his sin, he repented. I think every time. When David wanted to kill Nabal, remember this is from a a few weeks ago, uh, because Nabal had cheated him and his men, so he's off on his way to kill him, to uh, take vengeance into his own hands. Uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, meets him on the way and confronts him with with gifts and also to talk him down off of this, this action that he's about to do. And he relents and he lets the Lord deal with Nabal instead. Or, after living a life of deceit with the Philistines for 16 months, we just heard this last week and the week before, uh, God got David's attention by allowing his camp to be raided, and and David responded by by turning his heart and turning his actions back to honoring God. And then we'll find out, as we move into 2 Samuel, we're going to find out about the time where David sins uh, and commits adultery and then murder, Uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband and then going to great lengths to cover it up. And then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he responds with remorse and with repentance. Saul's track record is is just as consistent as David's, except for it's exactly the opposite. Um, On the day when Saul started the offering before Samuel got there, Samuel confronted him and Saul made excuses, and he offered no regret after Saul defeated the, Am- the Amalekites but did not kill the king or destroy all of the livestock like he was commanded, Samuel again confronted Saul. And this time, this time Saul says some words that sound like remorse. He says, he says, yes, I've sinned. I've sinned. But please honor me before the elders. Please stay with me uh, and worship with me so that I won't look bad in front of everybody else. To me, that, that doesn't ring true as a real apology. And God knows the difference. Because God God knows the heart. And now, on the final night of his life, it seems that Saul has nothing to say. A person living a horizontal life is too preoccupied with their own pride to be moved to real repentance. And just let that sink in for a moment, because it applies to all of us at different times. A person living a horizontal life is too preoccupied with their own pride to be moved to real Repentance. Remember on Good Friday, we had our special Good Friday service here, and we watched a, we watched a, a, a drama, a, a drama sketch, and it, it featured the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair, and because she was so thankful that, that Jesus was somebody that, that could forgive her sins. And Jesus said that she was forgiven much, not because she had sinned, in any which way that, may, that God saw as more serious than somebody else's sin. She was forgiven much because she knew that she needed to be forgiven. She was forgiven much because she was desperate to be forgiven and she asked for forgiveness. The Pharisee in the story, he was not forgiven much. He was not forgiven much because he did not believe he really needed it. His pride got in the way. His life was more horizontal than it was vertical. And moving to our final point, a horizontal life ends in vain while a vertical life finishes well. In chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, a couple chapters ahead of where we've been, we have a grim account of Saul's death. The Philistine army greatly overpowers Israel. The Israelite soldiers turn and they run, and they try to run up the side of the valley. They try to run up the side of uh, Mount Gilboa, but the enemy arrows get them. Uh, Saul's three sons, and one of them is David's best friend, Jonathan, they are all killed by arrows, probably right in front of Saul's eyes. And then Saul is critically wounded himself. And I wonder, I wonder, while he lay there dying, I wonder if he thought back to the day when he was anointed as king. The Lord said that Saul would deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. I wonder if Saul realized that if he hadn't pridefully wasted so much time and so much of his resources pursuing David in the wilderness because of his horizontal governing principle that maybe this battle wouldn't even had have to have been. He was supposed to defeat the Philistines and now they've killed him. And I wonder if he realized how darkly ironic It was that the man who delivered the final blow, and this is from the beginning of 2 Samuel, the man who delivered the final death blow to to Saul was an Amalekite from the people that Saul was supposed to destroy, but he didn't. We don't know what he was thinking because Scripture doesn't tell us. But the pattern of Saul's horizontal life would lead us to surmise that he probably died the way that he lived, thinking of himself and not the Lord. A sad end, brought about by nearly a lifetime of poor choices. And it's ironic, really. It was Saul's desperate obsession with self-preservation that brought him to his own demise. And for what? What did Saul's earthly life actually amount to? Yes, he led Israel in some successful battles, but he missed out on everything else. He missed out on the opportunity to walk closely with God. It was offered to him, and he missed out on it. He missed out on the opportunity to spiritually lead his people. This was a life wasted on petty pride and selfish ambition. We've been offered relationship with God. We've been offered something amazing. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could have forgiveness for sin and relationship with God. Let us not be like one merely snatched away from the flames, like we see in the New Testament, and saved by the skin of our teeth. Let us not waste these days that we have here by petty pride and selfish ambition. Let us learn that lesson from Saul. David, on the other hand, finished well. He made his own share of mistakes, but he kept returning to the Lord. And when his life was ending, this is much, much later, He passed on his vertical life wisdom to his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2. He said, this is David, he said, walk in obedience to God and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Two very different men and two vastly different governing principles in their life. And I want to illustrate this one, one other way this morning. Uh, I found two posters on the internet. Uh, they're, they're the same poster, but they've been altered a bit. If we can start off with one. Maybe you've seen this. These things float, they float around everywhere. But it says, Respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. Almost everybody in our society would would agree with this. They would treat this as an axiom. And it's close enough to truth. I mean, certainly God has given us value. It's close enough to truth, but what it does is it leads us towards the wrong governing principle. If we could look at the next one, it's it's the same picture and the same words, but they've just been altered. Respect God enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves God, grows you in Christ, or makes God happy. That is a governing principle that is vertical and not horizontal. That is the truth about what it is to live as citizens of heaven and not citizens of earth like we we heard about in Philippians. Life is about God. And as I I'm, I'm going to call up Sammy and I think Matt as well. And as they come up, I'm going to ask you just another question. I don't think I put it on the PowerPoint. Just am I living a vertical life? Is my life about God or is my life about me? Is it vertical or is it horizontal? Am, Am I living to honor God like David or am I living to honor myself like Saul?